Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed, Unemployed Workers, Workers Fight Back. 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 Join your hosts Anne and Kevin, that's me, the second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone, Everyone in our community, community has value. value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday the 14th of May. Anne, how are you doing? Hey Kevin, how are you? I'm, I'm good. I had to try and remember whether it was May because all the winter months blur into one because it's just cold and grey and, and I can't tell one from the other. <laughs> we, we can tell this week is a little bit different from other weeks because it was budget week. We had the budget delivered by Josh Frydenberg. It was so exciting. It was budget exciting. week. Exciting. Exciting. <laughs> I stayed up all night and to watch it. What's happened? What's <laughs> happening to us? It, like, one week I'm going to a music festival. That should be exciting. How can mm-hmm. a, a budget possibly be exciting? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Are you proud of the fact that you're 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 excited by a budget? I, well, I'm just astounded that I am. You know, a couple of years ago, even I never paid attention. I just thought it was all this boring people in in suits just rabbiting on about stuff that I couldn't understand. But you know, I think what's changed actually for me is putting on my modern monetary theory lens because now I can kind of look at what they're saying and see right through the BS, which is actually quite fun when you can you can read what they're really saying. <laughs> it's like learning a foreign language, I guess. It's like um, if I learned French and then I watched a movie that was in, in, in French and I, and I understood it, I'd be quite excited. So I think yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah. a, a similar analogy. It's like, oh, wow, I actually understand yeah. what they're saying now. So that's, that's kind of good. Or at least I've got the subtitles now. <laughs> what can we interpret from this, um, from this budget by Josh Frydenberg? I see it as an attack on labour and a death wish when it comes to global warming, all wrapped up in an election strategy swaddled inside that usual completely harmful and completely erroneous debt and deficit ideology. So that was what we were handed, I reckon, Kevin, as a budget. (laughs) What they've done is do everything that Labor would normally do in a budget, which is address the neglect that Mm. had been run up over the years beforehand. Um, and, And it's quite ironical that the government that run de- has run down aged care and the NDIS and ignored uh, uh, women's safety issues and all this stuff that they normally do, mm-hmm. has decided to actually fix their own, what do you call it, bugger-ups uh, mm-hmm. uh, themselves. <laughs> normally they leave that for Labor. And then when Labor does it, they go, oh, look at them, they're spending money, they're running up the deficit, they're being financially responsible. This time yeah. they decided to be financially responsible themselves, but mm-hmm. because they're the ones being financially responsible... Mm-hmm. They don't have to criticise themselves. And yeah, so they get I love away the way. It. I love the way what being financial, fiscally responsible. I love the way that definition has done a complete U-turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, now, now I have to qualify what I just said. When I say they're being financially irresponsible, that's by their standards, not by our standards. We mm-hmm. like the fact that governments mm-hmm. spend. Mm-hmm. We think that deficits are, are important and absolutely necessary, mm-hmm. and we need to make sure that 
when a government deficit deficit spends, it spends into the right areas. And That's so right. I guess yeah. we have to have a look at this budget and see where have they spent it. I don't think they're changing their stripes in, in the way that they're running a deficit now, which, of course, you know, less than a year ago almost, they were saying that a deficit is the height of irresponsibility and a height of economic mismanagement. And they haven't actually changed their ideology. And I've been gathering the proof, Kevin. <laughs> so I've I'm sure to you them. have, Anne. I'm sure you have. <laughs> I've got the list. So they're still talking about budget repair, okay? You would not yeah. talk about budget repair if you had seriously changed to understand that a good way to run the economy is actually to spend into the economy. The budget never needs repairing. Like, that's just ridiculous. Because... What, what, needs, what needs repairing is the environment needs repairing. Unemployment, exactly. uh, poverty needs repairing. Uh, exactly. uh, society needs rep- The world needs repairing, mm-hmm. not the budget. The budget is the thing that can repair all mm-hmm. these other problems. And the other thing that he's doing, Josh Frydenberg, is that he's very proud of having achieved a balanced budget prior to the pandemic. So he is still rewriting economic history to tell us that the economy was in good shape prior to the pandemic. And that is why that they can do this spending now. So that's utter... Uh, it's, it's, that is complete bullshit. Uh, let's, mm-hmm. not, let's not mince our words on it. It's like they, they want to have it both ways. They want to say that, that uh, uh, running a surplus is a good idea and running a deficit is a good idea. And mm-hmm. they say you only run a deficit right. in an emergency. Right. Well, you run a deficit whenever you need to spend... Sometimes you don't in very rare circumstances, and that's got to do with um, your balance of trade. But mostly in Australia, you need to spend. It's not having this once-in-a-hundred-year emergency. <laughs> We've run deficits for 100 years. The, the deficits are the norm. Deficits are what sustains uh, growth in the economy. If you're going to have uh, inflation running at 2 or 3% and wages rising at a, at a small mm-hmm. level, you need to expand your economy. And government deficits, mm. government spending is the best way to exactly. do that. Otherwise, you, you, you call on people to, to um, create private debt, which needs to be paid back. And, and when it gets paid back, things collapse. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happened with the GFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's private debt had accumulated to a point that was unsustainable, uh, and then the economy fell mm-hmm. over. And guess who picked mm-hmm. up the pieces? Guess who bailed out the banks? Exactly. The Federal Reserve, you know, the, the central central mm-hmm. bank. We've got to stop pretending that the deficits need to be repaid. Mm-hmm. They do not they need do to not. be repaid. They are essential for growing economies. And the debt does not need to be repaid. That's right. The debt is the wrong word. The debt is the total of the government contribution to the economy. Oops, I used the debt word. So it's not a debt. <laughs> it's a government contribution to the economy. Mm-hmm. It helps uh, underpin yep. uh, a, a healthy, growing yep, economy. Yep. So we have to train ourselves every time the government or a commentator talks about the debt. Just hear that as the government's necessary contribution to the economy in order to have an economy. Yes, and thank you, government. And you're never getting it back. You never will. Stop pretending. <laughs> <laughs> We've had this exactly. conversation before. And you know, the other way you know they haven't changed their stripes on this, and this is just a clue, like that you know they haven't changed, is that they still talk about debt to GDP ratios. Oh, yes. When you hear someone talk about debt to GDP ratio, what they're saying is that if it's a favourable ratio, that means it's easier to pay back the debt. And so they're still stuck in that mindset that it's a debt that needs to be paid back. So any talk about debt to GDP ratios, that's also neoliberal ideology. Oh, that's gobbledygook. But however, even on their own, uh, even on their own definition, the Labor government after the GFC had a a debt <laughs> to GDP ratio of fifteen percent, and that was the one that Abbott and mm. Joe Hockey said was going to ruin mm. us all mm-hmm. and send us into um, uh, into, into catastrophe. Yep. Uh, by 2025, under this government, mm-hmm. that 
that ratio is going to reach 40%. So the coalition <laughs> government will have created a 40% debt to GDP ratio, and they're saying it's fine. And this is what I'm saying is they can't have it both ways. They can't sit there and say, we're all going to go to rack and ruin. It's going to be three times or two or three times as bad as what it was. And they're saying, that's yeah. fine. Make up your minds, yeah, yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're not explaining why they've managed to change <laughs> suddenly on what's an okay debt to GDP yeah. ratio. Can we run deficits or not? Yes, we can. And we should stop calling them deficits. We should just say we need government contributions to the economy, which will never be repaid. End of story. Yep. That's it. You and I rabbit on about this stuff, and we're not particularly experts mm-hmm. at this sort of thing. But uh, we're getting an expert on today. We're, uh, Bill Mitchell's coming in to give us some of his ideas. Um... Professor Bill Mitchell of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity in Newcastle, who is also the founding intellectual of modern monetary theory. That's an absolute scoop, Kevin. The guru of modern monetary theory. In my humble opinion, Bill Mitchell is one of a handful of people in Australia who can actually give you the lowdown on the budget without any of that neoliberal BS around it, which is such a valuable thing to have on the airwaves. So if people could keep that in mind when the Radiothon happens next month and uh, subscribe to our show or donate and mention Anne and Kev unemployed workers fight back oh yeah because we've got to earn our keep you know this, <laughs> this is all about a show about uh, macroeconomics or in the microeconomic world of 3cr we have to earn our keep That's and right. that means we need to have people supporting us anyway let's uh let's listen to some some music and we'll come back to have a little talk with bill you're listening to 3cr 855 am on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au Do you 
Race and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Subscribe now. Thank you, Hugo, for supporting 3CR. We have a radio thon coming up in the near future, and we think everybody should support 3CR and give us a plug on Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev. Uh, before Hugo, we heard from Raging Moby with their song Head in the Sand. Uh, shout out to Declan, who's in Raging Moby. He's one of my festival buddies. I've been very much looking forward to seeing Raging Moby live myself one day. And Anne, as we were saying, we're uh, going to be speaking with Professor Bill Mitchell, mm-hmm. who is uh, on the line as we speak. How are you, Bill? Hi, it's, uh, I'm doing very well. How are you guys going? Really great. Great to have you on the show, Bill. I think... Uh... We are going to have one of the most riveting conversations about the budget compared to all of the mainstream 
media. So it's a real thrill to have you on the show. <laughs> should aim higher than that. It wouldn't be very hard to have a better conversation on what's in the mainstream media. <laughs> One of the things which is becoming apparent post-COVID is that uh, unemployment's going all over the shop. We're trying to drop unemployment to... 5%, 4%, 3% apparently, according to who you want to speak to, to reach full employment. Uh, and we've also got this this um, uh, shortage of chefs. Uh, my mate works in transport. He can't get enough drivers. Uh, all these workers seem to have disappeared because we've been importing them from overseas uh, for so long. In terms of the budget and in terms of getting unemployment to an acceptable level, what are your thoughts um, uh, on the budget and how that might, have, might affect these situations? The one question I'd ask your mate... What wages are he, uh, he prepared to pay to attract labour? Mm. All this talk about skill shortages coming from the employers, what they're not really saying to us, to the people, is, well, we've been used to getting labour cheap on migration, short-term migration visas and uh, backpackers and all of this stuff. And we've been paying rock bottom wages and dirt conditions. And now that that, that labour source is temporarily absent, you know, we've, we've, we're confronting a reality where we, 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 we could get the labour if we were prepared to pay higher wages. And the, so their mentality is going to have to change. There's no skill shortage at the moment. There's, there's 1.8 million people without enough work. Mm-hmm. But there's not enough chefs. You know, they're saying up in Queensland that the, the tourism is um, affected up there because they haven't got the wok chefs um, uh, necessary who all, who all come from overseas. And I get your point. And my mate who works in HR for this uh, this company that shall remain nameless uh, has been having this battle with his employers for quite some time saying, we need to pay more, we need to pay more. And now they have to pay more to get the drivers because the cheaper drivers are no longer available. Uh, so it's, it's a, it exposes how the import of international workers has been used as a tool to keep downward pressure on wages. They will work for less than Australian workers. So now we need to ex- uh, skill up all these wok chefs that uh, might be unemployed in Australia. But there's this gap now. It's the same with the aged care nurses where they're saying we're going to put all this money into aged care but we don't have the qualified uh, staff to look after them. So you can spend all the money, but if you haven't got the workers to support the spend, then the program is going to be at risk. Well, the two points I'd make is that one, go back to when we truly had full employment in the period before the mid-1970s. Vacancies always were larger than the unemployment pool. So you had more jobs being opening up for people and there were people to to work. Now, what did that force? That forced a dynamic efficiency because as well as the bosses having to chase labour, they also had to make sure that they offered training and uh, and skill development at the same time as, as they opened a job slot. And uh, they couldn't afford to be fussy. And so their own personal prejudices had to decline but they also had to have skill development in-house skill development now with this long extended period three or four decades of mass unemployment the bosses have got lazy and as a consequence they've forgotten that they might have to chase and 
pay better conditions for labour and, and actually train them. Now, the other thing to observe here is that we're really now starting to pay the price of the debilitating retrenchment of quality in our in our vocational education system. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way we've decimated TAFE, the way we've forced uh, state government training schools like TAFEs to compete against these shopfront private education and training providers, you know, who call a library a, a steel bookshelf with two books in it, mm-hmm. uh, we're now going to start paying the price of that. Because mm-hmm. when we had true full employment, we also had very well thought out, forward looking training programs, apprenticeship and skill development. And that was off that was often administered through the Commonwealth Employment Service, who had a forward looking view of that that anticipating where the skill shortages would be and where we needed to make sure there were workers getting vocational skill development. And mm. so all of those things are now, uh, you know, are missing. Yeah, so this is a budget that continues to exacerbate that problem because I did read somewhere that, they are, that it actually will be defunding universities by about 10%. That's true, but it's not necessarily the, the point I was making. The point I was mm-hmm. making was more about vocational education, not the education mm-hmm. that you get at universities. And like mm-hmm. we just had an example about two weeks ago in the Hunter Valley where the New South Wales government flogged off the Scone campus, the TAFE campus, to New South Wales Racing. And uh, that just happens to dovetail nicely into a private development uh, training company that trains uh, horse race type skills. I can see how they are still trying to supply an exploitable workforce out of the local population to fill that gap of an exploitable workforce that we used to be getting overseas. And the way I see that happening is they're still attacking the unemployed (laughs) and still saying we're, you know, too lazy to get off the couch and go pick fruit. And they're still attacking the employed because I understand there was a um, an increased ability to for the employers to have casualised labour through some changes in the industrial relations law, law recently. So it seems like there's that pincer attack on the labour force to to enable the bosses to still have an exploitable labour pool in Australia. What is their theory of inflation at the moment? Because if unemployment goes down, then inflation would would go up. I mean, inflation wouldn't go up if there's no wages growth. So where do they think they're going to be able to drive inflation up if that's what they want? Well, I mean, they're totally con- the, the whole economic narrative underpinning all of these things is totally confused now because, mm. because the all of the things that they've been telling us for years, which have been just a series of uh, related fictions uh, are now being revealed to almost everybody to be fictions rather than just a few people who were pointing it out at the time. Uh, Look, you know, you think back to the first Abbott hockey period when uh, hockey was treasurer and made his first fiscal statement, otherwise known as the budget. I don't use that term because it's that's, 
perpetuating one of the major fictions that the federal government fiscal situation of spending and taxes are just really similar to yours and my budgets, household budgets. Think about where the public gets its uh, its uh, miseducation from. You only need to look at uh, an explainer on the ABC website yesterday where, where they said we'll explain what the federal budget is and one of the opening paragraphs was you, it's good to think of the federal budget like your household budget. Well, that's just... Oh, no. no. <laughs> I, I was sitting in an airport lounge yesterday and the two things I read before I got on the plane was that and then a, tw- a, a graphic mm-hmm. from the Labor Party talking about excessive debt. So the fictions are Hockey and Costello and all these characters and even the Labor Party too. I mean, they're... they're, they're blame as much as anyone told us that if uh, governments ran deficits then interest rates would rise bond yields would rise uh, inflation would rise and we would uh, be in desperate shape now now none of that's happened we've abandoned that narrative Uh, someone said to me say oh the dna of the government's changed i said well dna doesn't change uh Politics have changed, and uh, but but you know they, they haven't got a theory of inflation anymore. Because mm. in their in their own fiscal papers yesterday, the wages growth is flat out to two thousand and twenty four. It's hardly wages mm-hmm. are hardly growing. Real wages are falling, and, and and to be fair, they I'm very happy that they've. Uh, adopted the principle of driving unemployment down as low as they can rather than worrying about Mm -hmm. deficit numbers and debt numbers. But they can't claim credit Mm -hmm. for that, by the way, because really they're just following what the US government has done done anyway. Uh, One of the criticisms I hear of the name of MMT is is the word theory. Uh, And I always find it interesting because neoliberalism is also a theory. And the theory is, as you just stated, that if uh, if a government runs its deficit too high and accumulates too much debt, all these things are going to happen. That's their theory. Well, the practice has shown that they haven't happened. And this and this proves that the, that the theory is wrong. It doesn't prove the theory is wrong, but it suggests the theory is wrong. Okay, so you're far more academic on this, and so I'll, I'll take your definition on this. Your theory appears to be far more correct. If we're talking about theories, and, and, and people say, "Oh, theory is only theoretical; it's not practical." The MMT as a theory is is proving to be far more practical than neoliberalism as a theory, which is proving through practice to be false. Well, look, I've been predicting for 20 years or 25 years that bond yields in Japan won't rise and that inflation won't increase and interest rate mm. won't rise. My, the, my colleagues in the economics profession have been predicting exactly the opposite. Well, you can work out who's correct and who's incorrect now. And now it might be mm-hmm. that I'm just, uh, I'm just a chancer and was lucky. Uh, it might also be that I actually know how those things work and that I got it right. So, you, you know, you can work out which one you want to accept. We'll get some peer review on that. Yeah. Mm. But the point is, that now, they're, now they're sort of like a boat that's, that's out in the sea without, without any paddles or boat motors. They're just, they don't, they're just floating around 
And remember that, you know, the US Federal Reserve redefined macroeconomic policy last year when Jerome Powell stated that he was, that the Federal Reserve, that's their central bank, was abandoning this view mm-hmm. that they had to take a forward-looking view, fear of inflation, and tight, tighten policy in advance mm-hmm. before the inflation had actually occurred. And what he said was that that had proven over two or three decades to be extremely damaging to unemployment and that it meant that policy was often much tighter than it should have been. That means contractionary. And uh, as a consequence, that that was causing unemployment to be at elevated levels. They said it's much more sensible for us now to set policy at levels that drive employment to make sure unemployment gets to the lowest levels of possible. And then when eventually see inflation start coming up, then we'll deal with it. We're quite happy to let inflation go above 2% as long as we're driving employment down and, and then later we'll deal with it if it becomes a problem. Now, all that the Australian government's doing is just, is just aping that strategy. Well, thank you, Bill, because I had been wondering what on earth was was actually behind this sea change um, with the Morrison government, like what really was driving their willingness to adopt something that had been so contrary to their ideology up till now. Let's be a little bit blunt. What's been driving their complete reversal of ideology and turning them into hypocrites by their own standards is what, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> There's an election coming up. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. We're speaking with Professor Bill Mitchell. Bill, there's all this talk about full employment, about a rate at which we have full employment. Uh, It was at 6% a while ago. Then it was reduced to five and four, and now Trish is talking about three point seven five percent. Can you explain to us what is meant by full employment? Well, I mean, this has been a big debate, and I did I wrote a PhD on this. So, uh, um, look, in the nineteen fifties, everybody believed that uh, full employment was that there had to be enough jobs to satisfy the available desire for those jobs from the workers, the supply side. And some people would say, and then there was a debate about the quality of work and the hours of work. And so, you know, more generally, you would say that full employment is when there's enough hours on offer to satisfy uh, uh, the desires of the workforce. Now, in the late 50s, it started to become rather complicated because the inflation link to, to that bowl was introduced, but this is the so-called Phillips curve. And uh, this, this said that there was some sort of trade-off between inflation and unemployment, the twin evils, as they used to talk, call, talk about. And so if you wanted to have high employment rates, low unemployment rates, then you had to accept some, infl- some rate of inflation and it became an Im- empirical matter as to what that curve looked like, the trade-off looked like. Uh, and then, then along came Milton Friedman and his monetarists, and they said, oh, no, there's no trade-off at all. If you, if you push unemployment below this 
Nehru, as you called it, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, then you get in accelerating inflation. And, and this was part of a whole strategy to uh, stop governments engaging in discretionary fiscal policy aimed at keeping unemployment low. And so the profession and the policymakers all became infested with this view that there was some elevated level of unemployment that you had to maintain, otherwise inflation. Now, a whole group of PhD graduates emerged to, to run complex statistical models estimating this stuff, working out what that level of unemployment was. The, the, the estimates are always really flaky. They depend on assumptions. Uh, you know, you had papers coming out where the Nehru would be estimated to be 8% and uh, with a confidence interval of, say, between 3% and 14%. In other words... In other words, in statistical terms, what a confidence interval means in statistical terms, you could be equally sure it would be 3% or 14%. Kind of meaningless. <laughs> in other words, it's just it's entirely unreliable. The, the estimates were so imprecise that as a vehicle for precise policy setting, totally useless, but it became the mantra, the religion. And that's and that's what uh, we're hearing from uh, from both sides of politics and treasury as their measure of full employment is this flaky basis of the Nairu, which mm. is entirely unreliable. What you ended up understanding if you knew if you knew what was what, and did worked in this area and weren't seduced by the ideology, you ended up understanding that really the Nairu just tracked the unemployment rate mm-hmm. anyway. The estimates of the Nairu really just tracked the unemployment rate anyway. So, so in the 80s, for example, <clears throat> you know, my colleagues in Australia and, uh, you know, the Centre of Independent Studies and the the IPA and all these these people were pumping out estimates of the Nehru at 8%. Suddenly, at full employment went from 3% to 8%. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in the mid-70s, uh, going back another decade, the... Treasury would started to put out these estimates. It suddenly had these big step jumps from two percent to six percent, and 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 they couldn't explain why. It was just mm. because unemployment mm. had So the way they estimated their Nehru models were really based upon a complex sort of weighted sort of average of the actual unemployment rate. So it just a mm. filtered mm. version. You know, I get this image of someone trying to measure how closely their shadow is going to follow them. <laughs> You probably could measure a shadow because it's got a geometric basis, whereas the Nairu sounds like it's retrospective and made up on the hop. Uh, Well, you know, there was a heavy science and that they employed. All the top-notch econometricians did stuff. But it was all in this uh, environment that just an unbelievable environment that they would work in. You saw in the 90s where... In the US, for example, as the unemployment rate fell, inflation didn't start rising. And then, they, you know, the Congressional Budget Office would put out new estimates of the Nehru falling, falling, falling. So, so all that's going on now is that they're, they're realising that the, mm. the unemployment rate is lower. It was 4% in 2008. They can go lower than that without inflation. 
And the important point I'd make is that that whole logic has, has changed because it relied on unemployment being related to inflation. And what we know is since the 91 recession in Australia, uh, for the first time we saw underemployment. Underemployment. So part-time workers can't get enough hours. And so through the 90s, as unemployment mm-hmm. fell, mm-hmm. underemployment rose as casualisation mm-hmm. of the workplace occurred and deregulation and all of that stuff. And so really the pressure on wages was held down not because not because unemployment mm. was high, it was falling, but because underemployment was high and rising. That's what's hidden in, in this whole budget is that the, the underemployment hasn't been mentioned. They're d- disguising this, this uh, falling unemployment rate um, because they don't mention the underemployment because that keeps the downward pressure on wages, keeps the insecure um, uh, workplace. Yeah, yeah it's the under- the underemployment is what's driving the low wages pressure in an environment where unemployment rate falls. Mm-hmm. And we saw that in the 90s very clearly that the link between inflation and unemployment started to become less precise. Mm. And that was because underemployment rose. So mm. you could get the falling un- unemployment rates down to you know, 3.9%, 4% without any inflationary pressures because underemployment was at 9%. Mm. So basically, we can predict if uh, if we don't see wages growth, no matter how much hand wringing we see in the uh, media about low wages growth, we can predict that it won't rise, and unless they're going to really seriously deal with underemployment as well as unemployment. That, that's right. They've got to they've got to seriously address the casualisation issue, the precariousness mm-hmm. issue, the gig economy issue, the out using of independent contractors, masquerading em- employees as independent contractors to evade all of the other conditions that a normal employee mm-hmm. would. And we're seeing no sign of any interest in dealing with that. <laughs> so in all, all this talk around the fiscal statement, Thank you. we heard that we were going to increase employment through these age-old tried and untrue measures, I think, of um, training and wage subsidies and some kind of youth services program. And I was just wondering what you thought of those strategies as a way to increase employment. Well, look, you know, the, the way to increase employment is to create jobs. That's pretty simple. <laughs> In John Howard's period, we saw it explicitly stated that the goal of government was no longer to generate full employment but was to generate full employability. Mm. That was an explicit shift from a demand-side focus, creating enough jobs and work, to a supply-side mm-hmm. focus, uh, forcing workers through all sorts of training hoops and, uh, and mutual obligation-type activities without there being a job in sight. Mm. And so really, really what all those strategies do, in the absence mm. of a demand-side strategy, that is to create work, is just shuffle, shuffle the unemployment pool. And so you mm-hmm. might skill up one person ahead of the other. Right. That just makes them, puts them closer to the front of the queue than they were before, but it doesn't give them a job. And it relieves the um, the government of any responsibility of providing employment. It, it, it supports their private uh, private sector agenda, which is, um, you know, government get out of the way and let the private sector do everything, which in a situation like this um, fails. It always fails unless you have a balanced 
in the full employment period, governments took responsibility to make sure there was enough jobs, but they also made sure that the supply side, that is the skill base, was was continually evolving to cat, to meet the demand for workers and to try as best they could. It was an imperfect science, it was an art form, mm. but to try the best they could to make sure that the skills that they were funding to develop mm. matched what they thought were going to be the skills that were required by the economy. Mm. Yeah, so we still need supply, what you're calling supply-side strategies and we need demand-side strategies, but when you just have the supply-side without the demand side, then it just becomes this diabolical torturing of your of your workforce with false promises. A waste of waste of resources, waste of time. Mm. Well, it's been great uh, having you on the show, Bill. You've um, uh, informed us about a lot. Is there anything that you um, would would like to just say in general about the budget uh, as you've had the short time to view it? Uh, how do you feel about it? <laughs> well, look, you know, I think the emphasis on lowering unemployment is good. I think the de-emphasis on the size of the deficit and debt is progress. Uh, uh, whether the government intends, to, you know, to reserve the debt and deficit scaremongering for when Labor's in government, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, uh, I think that's progress. I think, you know, the spe- some of the most of the spending initiatives are worthwhile. Uh, they don't go far enough and certainly, you know, in aged care, there's more spending in aged care, but there's not enough. They certainly have balked at some of the uh, uh, important recommendations of the Royal Commission, but but it, having not gone far enough, they've still got increased spending, which is beneficial. I think the uh, uh, failure to do anything about renewable energies at Paul. I think the fail to do anything about universities is poor. They've really killed killing the university system at the moment. And that's really part of our future productivity system and our innovation and our uh, mm. uh, all of that. And they're, they're really taking it out on the sector that I work in. Uh, right. Are you willing to conjecture on what's behind that approach? Oh, I think it's pretty obvious what's behind it. They, they, they've bought the... Uh, that, you know, it's been a, a, a long-term mantra of the Federal Liberal Party that the university is a dangerous left-wing bastion mm-hmm. that, uh, mm-hmm. that, that undermines social stability and, and conservatism. But uh, mm-hmm. So all of those spending initiatives, I think, are good, even if most of them don't go far enough, and there's certainly some that are non-existent, like in renewables. Two of the big things Australia needs is uh, conversion to renewables, and uh, social housing and uh, 400,000 houses shortage in that area is not only making it harder for low-income workers but also fueling the home, uh, lacking in affordability and all of that. For all the big numbers everybody's talking about, this is a fiscal contraction going on. The, the, the projected deficit is less than it was last year. So the government is tightening policy, not loosening it, even though the numbers mm-hmm. are big. And that's only because last year the numbers were very big. So you're talking about tightening compared to last year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a tightening. And, uh, you know, most people think it's a spending a spendathon, uh, but it's a tightening. And most of the big numbers, 
are two or three years out. And they're really, you know, they're irrelevant because they're tied up to the political cycle and circumstances. So, uh, but, but, but moreover, what, what it's telling you is that, the, and the government's explicit about this, that it's relying on us increasing our consumers, consumption spending. Now, over the last year, household saving ratio has risen substantially. And as part of that process which is a very good outcome, is households are starting to pay off a lot of their debt, uh, particularly credit card debt. You know, your listeners should appreciate that household debt is at record levels and it's, uh, and it's at precarious levels. It will be a good thing if governments could continue to support income growth while allowing household saving to be uh, supported and paying down that debt. Now, they're not... In other words, what the government is really doing is going back to the prior model, relying on us driving growth through excessive credit growth while they don't spend as much as they should. That's my overall comment. Well, that, that, that's a great perspective to have, to, to really get a realistic understanding when people hear big numbers, that big numbers don't necessarily mean a healthier economy. Depends what they said. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for taking the time to come and speak to us. Uh, your opinions are always very valued here. Take care. See you later. Thanks a lot, Bill. Bye. It's very interesting how quickly they adopt socialist principles to protect the capitalist framework when it's not working. This has shown that they can chuck money and make a difference. And people are saying, well, make that difference now. We've got other emergencies. Let's spend some of that money seriously to reorientate the economy for public good and in the public interest, rather than saying, let the market provide. My hope is that they'll be bold with pressure to do things that build a more people-centred and focused future. And, you know, that comes down to us. It comes down to the 3CR listeners, the, the ACF and Friends of the Earth members, the trade unionists. It comes down to everybody that makes a difference and puts in. We need to build on the community that's been developed in the last couple of months and build on some of the smart ideas for a cleaner future. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Troublelands, 
was Pressure Drop with Take Me Higher. Now, uh, interesting fun fact, uh, apart from being a world-renowned progressive economist, Bill Mitchell is also the guitarist in Pressure Drop. So that was great speaking to uh, Bill, Bill Mitchell, our um, our guru of economics, the uh, the person who inspires pretty much the whole show. I'm going to have a look at the, the budget. It's not a budget, it's a fiscal statement. It's a fiscal statement. A budget is what you what how house, households run. That's going to be a hard one to change my head. But one thing which we hear is we hear these large amounts of money. We, we've, we're hearing about how the deficit is going to be $161 billion this year, $106 billion next year. We've just spent $200 billion. Like there has to be some sort of reference point as to what the spend is worth. Mm. So one thing which never wasn't even mentioned, nobody mm. talks about is – the defence budget over the next 10 years is going to be 
$270 billion. Now, oh, defence yes. is never questioned. It's just basically, radio. Right. we're going to spend $270 billion mm-hmm. over 10 years on defence. That's $27 billion mm-hmm. a year. No questions asked. Over 10 years. Yep. So, so mm-hmm. let's just say $27 billion a year. So they're going to spend mm-hmm. $17.7 billion on aged care. Mm-hmm. The Royal Commission into Aged Care recommended spending $10 billion a year ongoing every year, year after year. This budget allows $17.7 billion, so it wouldn't even last two years of the Royal Commission's recommendations. When you then compare that to the $29 billion a year that's going to defence, the marketing spin that uh, uh, ScoMo's putting on this being a uh, a massive shift for the aged care system, it's not that big. Even at $17.7 billion, it falls short of the demands currently on the system. Why do they never quite make the full amount? Oh, you know, <laughs> Just never quite get there, do and, they? <laughs> and the, the, the aged care staff are being paid $22 an hour which is just ridiculously low. So it's not going to attract workers. Mm -hmm. So even if they do put Mm -hmm. in this extra $17.7 billion worth of spending and can fund an extra 80,000 home care packages, that's over two years, they haven't got Mm. the carers, they haven't got the aged care qualified staff to support that, which means, again, it'll be one of these announcements that doesn't come to any fruition mm, because they don't have, the, come to fruition, have yeah. the structure mm-hmm. to support it. It's just nice words. Yeah, and yet what we'll see in the headlines is, oh, they're doing all this spending on aged care, aren't they? Finally, the empathetic, caring government. <laughs> this is their big ticket item. This is their once in a generation mm. boost to aged mm. care. It still falls short. Uh, all they're doing mm. is playing catch mm-hmm. up and not even making it. So we're giving their big ticket item about, what, six out of ten, five and a half out of ten? We're saying it's better than nothing, but it's not. It's still mm. not good enough. It doesn't come up to scratch, you know. What's mm. more important, looking after your age population or buying new submarines that are going to be outdated submarine. by the time they come? That's, that's a direct comparison. Yeah. You know what, Kevin? In my modern monetary theory world now, I'm actually quite happy for them to buy the submarines from overseas because I think, well, we're just giving them bits of paper or bits and bytes in a computer in exchange for a whole lot of steel. And <laughs> Look, I don't have a problem with that per se, but I do have a problem with the comparisons that are made to other parts of the, if you can do this, right. then you can also do that. And it's not mm-hmm. like they even have to stop the $27 billion mm-hmm. spend on defence. They can mm-hmm. do that and they can also mm-hmm. spend more on aged care. Uh, as yeah, we've yeah. seen, universities going backwards, and, and it was very interesting mm-hmm. hearing Bill just put that uh, straight out there. They don't like mm-hmm. universities. They regard them as lefty, progressive, radical mm-hmm. institutions Amazing, that are going to make life it? hard for them. <laughs> They're still true. wanting to round up the lefties and fling them into some Siberian place. Yep. Now, did you hear about the, what they're spending on the environment uh, in the budget last night, uh, by any chance? And they're going to Kevin. I didn't hear. They did. They they mentioned (laughs) they mentioned two things. They're going to look at hydrogen and carbon capture. They will not. They will not touch renewables. It's like this Mm. ideology that they just won't go near. So they have Mm. no agenda for climate change. Now they they say Mm. that they can spend all this money uh, because we have a a health emergency. But we mm-hmm. have an ongoing climate we have emergency. A climate that is emergency not going away, and they have mm-hmm. done nothing. They it is mm. just not on their radar. So mm. that's a massive, massive fail. And you would have thought mm. that if they're trying to drive up employment, that they could mm. 
employ people yep. the the, yep. the climate crisis that we have but it's just perfect not perfect way radar. to create meaningful work and it's not happening yeah that's what i think as their death wish in the in the budget i did see that the australian youth for climate change were out there on the lawns of parliament complaining that it wasn't in the budget so that's great to oh, that's see that's good the women's well-being package uh, attracted 3.4 billion dollars half of that is mm. for childcare now as this has been pointed out childcare mm. is not Mm-hmm. simply the domain of women. Improving childcare helps fathers and men as well. So half of the $3.4 million can't really be dedicated straight towards women. That leaves $1.7 billion for improving the lot of women. That's over mm-hmm. three years, so that means divide by three, that makes mm-hmm. it $600 million a year for uh, assistance right. to women. Right. Compare right. that to $27 billion a year for defence. And the other thing to compare it to is the need. So I have heard various think tanks like the Australia Institute calculating that we need to spend another $6 billion or so to have free universal childcare. This, again, is one of those pathetic half measures, even though it's not even half. So did you notice they were wearing pink ties? when they? <laughs> I was having a look, a look at some of the wide shots on the uh, coalition benches. All the women um, are congregated behind the... Prime Minister. Oh, interesting for the photo shot. Mm-hmm. To both flanks was completely men. So they've stuck uh, all the women and people of uh, cultural diversity in behind the Prime mm-hmm. Minister. The rest of the benches, middle-aged white blokes. <laughs> well just... spotted, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> it's just well, they are the, the women-friendly party, aren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you'd expect mm. nothing less mm. when you've got a second-rate marketing guy as your Prime Minister. Hey, uh, Anne, I think, I think we need to wrap up and give other people a turn to speak on the radio. Mafalda's mm-hmm. coming up next. Uh, it's been another um, interesting show. Yeah. And lovely having Bill on. Lovely, it was great. Lovely having you on. Oh, and lovely to have you too, Kevin. <laughs> well, <laughs> we're always going to be here. And I hope everyone's as excited about the, the fiscal statement as we are. <laughs> I'm not, not entirely sure about that, Anne. Uh, however, I'm going to go and catch out... Uh, uh, Pressure Drop with Bill, Bill Mitchell, and listen to him play guitar as opposed to talk about economics. Mm. Anyway, uh, time to go. See you next time, Anne. See you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I quite oh. enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> you've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.